But yeah, I mean, uh, we were just talking before we hit record, but I won't spend too much time on this because it just gives me anxiety. But there was an article about QAnon in the magazine I was reading or the newspaper I was reading. And it was just kind of giving context of like, where did it come from? What is it? What's the movement? How is it being used? Um, And it combines two of my least favorite things, which are conspiracy theories and um, gun violence. So Yeah, not a great (laughs) combo there. It's, if you could put something into a mixture and like in front of my, blow it in front of my face, it would have to do with conspiracy theories. And I just, I don't have the stamina to negotiate. I, the whole time I was reading, I was just like, wow, we need to get off the internet. Mm-hmm. We just all need to not go there for conversation. It's just, I, it's, what's, I, what? No. Like, I would like some more examples of Twitter being a force for good, because I don't see it right now. It's, and it's, it's Reddit is the QAnon place, right? Like, my, my sense of the internet geography is that, like, Reddit 4chan. and 4chan are these, like, yeah. Not to, not to blanket statement. I'm sure no. there's some good parts of those websites no. somewhere. And it's maybe not QAnon putting stuff on Twitter, but it's um, the really demoralizing part is these weak uh, politicians that see a fervent base within a QAnon community and therefore will appease that by declaring loyalty mm-hmm. and thus erode any sense of normalcy we have in uh, what a domestic terrorist looks like. <laughs> Yeah, um, but it's okay because like domestic terrorists of... aren't a thing we sh- we need to be worried about. So like the fact that we don't really know what those are, what they look like, is totally fine and not a big problem at all. Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. I <laughs> yeah, I was just like, what do I believe? What do you believe, Katie? What do you believe? Because like the uh, the the sad part about QAnon is that it's based on a moral good, genuinely. They think they're, like all cults, they think they're doing morally good things. And on the surface, if you believe what they believe, that is true. Which is, I think, the gist I got from this um, from this reading was, <laughs> we're going to talk about this, sorry everyone. It's like, they have the deep state cover-up stuff. So there are people in power that must maintain their power through corrupt means. Which, like, welcome to humanity. But... That is a cover-up, too, in the sense that there's a giant pedophile ring that they are running, which is where Pizzagate came from and the Clintons being involved with it. And Mm -hmm. they cheered Jeffrey Epstein getting caught and yet think Trump is the Messiah come to save us all. So then there's, like, flat earther kind of rhetoric around we're going to make this suit this sort of odd... Anyway, the thing I learned... Mm-hmm. Is that they think Q is a ex-military person who reminded me of Banksy in this sort of literature I read, where it's like they're anonymous and they show up and they leave little breadcrumbs for the followers to find and put it together and be on that, mm-hmm. understand what's going on. And they they know what the reality is of the world. Um and it's just, it was, it was like, it was good to read it. So like you understand when someone says QAnon, but then it's also good to read it to see how people are manipulating these people. Yeah. Who believe in morally good things. I will give you that. Like a pedophile ring is bad. We can all agree. But it then segues into Trump is the Messiah and will deliver, deliver us from evil, which is 
not it's definitely a direction to take those thoughts yeah goals are good tactics and facts on the ground very limited very scary a very generous way of putting it yeah because i don't think i don't know i can't believe that badly of people or else i won't get out of bed and i have moments but like anybody that's taken advantage of is not somebody to be angry at in my opinion and people seek meaning from a lot of places And right now the internet is a new place to seek comfort and wisdom from. And it's going to be interesting as we have these new kind of cult dynamics with anonymous entities that you never meet, but you believe their doctrine. And it's just, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. And like, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but you got to know so that you don't get duped in my opinion. Which is ironic because that's how they get people where they're like, well, they're duping you. You could get in. And mm-hmm. Everybody should do a little lesson on, or do a little learning on cults and mob mentality. And like, how do we look at our sources and how do we evaluate our sources of information? Yeah, really smart, charismatic people. Yeah. There's this book that I have on my shelf somewhere that I haven't read in a really long time called On Bullshit which is like a philosophical theory about bullshit and that Mm -hmm. it's interesting in the sense that it kind of makes the argument like it's not so much that we are in an age of like more lying or like less agreement about facts but we are in an age of bullshit where people like those those concepts aren't even things that like really matter it's like what is this what what do i want and then how do i get there and the getting there like sort of everything is fair game and it doesn't really matter if you're referencing reality or not. You just want to get to the place you want to get to. That's the other thing with a lot of these big kind of antagonistic or violent groups is um, preying on your caveman brain that happens. Like that is why, I mean, I, I'm interested in learning more about why the economy as we see it actually just appeals to our instincts as mammals who had to fight for things and hoard and keep and protect our own. We talked about this a couple times over the past summer. And those instincts are good in this scenario against like panthers and a flood and a kind of non-entity. But when we reappropriate that to other people, the sort of like, we're also, we also live with immense empathy and understanding of other people. And so I find those two realities really interesting of like our mammal brains want to keep others out when we're scared. But then also the only thing to get us through it is to bond and mm. become a bigger collective. So when these people are fighting others in the streets and stuff, I'm just like, why can't you see? I don't know. It's just it doesn't work in my brain to punch somebody else. It doesn't. That's not. I get so mad at others for sure. I get mad. I have rage. I have. I, yeah, I've seen it. We have all of those normal things, but at the same time, I don't want to cause anybody else pain. Would say that's a very re- like reasonable way of approaching things, and is also a really great transition into the lady I want to talk about. Is it? Today. You're first too, so I that am. works out great. It. I love this when we don't plan it, and it just works really well. It's so good. It's like the themes we talk about are so universal. They could be applied to everybody. That's the hope. Let's do it. I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. 
Welcome to Missing History, a podcast where each episode we discover the people absent from history class. Spoilers, they're usually female identifying. We uncover their stories, investigate their impact, and discuss how they've been ignored or sidelined. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Yeah, so I want to sort of finish out my little mini-series of uh, women from Kamala Harris's DNC speech um, and talk a little bit about Diane Nash, who's sort Mm -hmm. of the last of those three women who had not previously had Missing History episodes. Um, But I think it's really fitting because Diane Nash is one of the sort of central proponents of nonviolence in the civil Mm -hmm. rights movement um, Mm -hmm. and will sort of start leading some of those nonviolent protests in the 60s and will actually sort of step away from some of the national civil rights organizations by the end of the decade, in part because she sees a transition away from nonviolence that Mm -hmm. she doesn't find particularly appealing. And so she actually moves into doing sort of different types of activism Mm-hmm. By like 1968, 1970, uh, because she disagrees with the the not nonviolent direction that some of the the civil rights groups she had worked with seem to be moving in. One could describe it as militant, but I don't know if that's fair. Either. Yeah, I think it's definitely it's a it's a complex thing. So I'm I want to be a little careful with the language in part just because I don't know the like details of it quite as much, and I think there mm-hmm. are very legitimate disagreements in talking about. Um, sort of doing activism work about how you go about doing that. Um, so I think I mostly want to sort of steer clear of the, in a, in a way I kind of want to chicken out and not have that bigger conversation at the mm-hmm. moment, just because it's something I recognize I'm not like really prepared Is to dive into. Yeah, um, that's fair. But we definitely recognize that it's definitely an ongoing conversation, even particularly um, this summer as a lot of the coverage of Um, protests tends to focus on the sort of like property destruction Mm -hmm. element. Um, And something I think that's really interesting in Diane Nash's story is that they're the beginning of some of their protests are nonviolent in the sense that like they choose not to use violence and also in the sense that like the response to them is nonviolent. But then what Mm. changes is never the nonviolence of the protesters, but the nonviolence of the people responding to those protests. And I think that's a point Mm -hmm. that's been made pretty consistently these last couple of months is that like protests in American cities don't become violent until the state reacts with force or other people react with force. And And all of a sudden it escalates. Yeah. And like I was at a, like a direct action training a couple of weeks ago where the organizers made a comment that like, nothing we ever do is nonviolent because other people can choose to bring violence into that situation. And so like, we need to have our values and come prepared with that, but also be aware of the fact that like other people can choose to come to these moments with different values and with a different expectation for what that moment is going to look like. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting to sort of see those conversations playing out today. And they're very similar to the conversations that were playing out in the sixties among different civil rights organizations. This is so fascinating because, like, yesterday I was genuinely, I just got to the point watching the news and watching everything going on and this, like, law and order rhetoric and all this stuff. And I was like, is it, can we get a mainstream of, like, nonviolence language? Like, I think it exists. I think it's out there, but it's definitely not amplified in the same way. And all you're seeing are the forceful rhetoric, which is inherently violent. And I just, it doesn't line up with how I, 
deal with things. So yeah, I I feel similar. Like I think one of the the things I would really love to see, and I think that we're sort of missing, is that right? Like you can you can talk forcefully about things even without using the language of violence. Yeah. Like the thing I always think about, right, is the idea of like the war on poverty or these like the war on things. Yeah. And I'm like, that is an absurd that we've Why like we... come to construct those big moments that like it has to be militarized or it has to be this like violent sort of warlike language. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's get meta on it though. How much of that though is just because that's, well, there, there's clearly like correct representation. Like that is where strength lives is in force. And we have not developed enough as a people to realize that quiet strength or different strength is just as, or resilience is a better word, is also a way to fight against things. I mean, like, yeah, that's fascinating. And just the language around it of like, that's where we prioritize strength and force is in, yeah, with language that is destructive. Yeah. And I'm, I want to see if I can find it because there's this term... Um, and I'll, we'll sort of, this definitely, this ties in a lot, but there's this term in sort of Gandhi's work around nonviolence, um, where the, like, the term that they use to describe it is something akin to sort of like holding to your truth, which I think was like a really powerful way of describing it. So it's not necessarily even the rejection of violence, but rather like holding on to principles in the face of other people choosing violence, Mm -hmm. um, which I felt was like a really beautiful way of describing it because it's not so much even a rejection of something else, but rather like Mm -hmm. a holding on to of deeper principles that are rooted Mm -hmm. in respecting other people, even when they're choosing not to respect you in that moment. And like on a totally unrelated note, um, (laughs) I've, been listening to a lot of dollop episodes recently so i love them they sometimes they get me a little sad it gets a little real and you're like oh you know it leaves you at the end of the episode and you're just like thanks i guess yeah but and- <laughs> when they're funny they're really funny yeah and i so they just did like a three-part series on john brown what a nut job yeah well right this is the thing like what a little noodle he was is he crazy is that just like how we talk about him because we're trying to like delegitimize this thing but the point being like john brown is the complete opposite end of this spectrum he's like the like violence is the solution and like there will be no answer of it um but the thing i had forgotten they did because i haven't listened to one of their episodes in a really long time is they start every episode by just like yelling the year it begins in yeah there's like no possible (laughs) way you can miss it uh, mm-hmm. And I've been like rereading my notes and I realized I like start most of my episode notes with like, this person was born on this date in this place. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm-hmm. I think I just want to start this episode with like a little cathartic, like loud date and just like jump what into it. What do you got? <laughs> 1938. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, Diane Nash is born in 1938, uh, May 15th in Chicago, Illinois. Oh, she's a fellow Taurus. I don't believe in astronomy or astrology. Astronomy? What? Astronomy's <laughs> fine. I don't believe in astrology. That is a good distinction. That is a very I like distinction. science. I like science. I want a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so our Taurus is, uh, grows up in Chicago. Uh, both her parents do war work during World War II. Her father is a clerk in the military. Um, her mother, Dorothy, is a key punch operator, so sort of like doing the punch cards for early computers. Um, 
And so because both of her parents are working, she's raised mostly by her grandmother, um, who does who works really hard to make sure she grows up having a really strong sense of self, but also trying to insulate her as much as possible from racial prejudice um, when she's young. Because her grandmother has this belief that young people learn prejudice from their elders. And so she basically is like, well, if I don't tell her about it, can she grow up free from it? Which I think is a really interesting idea. That's her grandmother. Um, Her name is Carrie Bolton. They're pretty great. And so Diane's growing up um, sort of raised a bit by her grandmother. Um, When the war ends, her parents split up and her mom remarries a gentleman who's part of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Car Porters, uh, which is the Pullman Porters Union. On the trains? Yeah. Like they would be the kind of butler for the... Yeah, for the sleeping the car trains. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's sort of the, one of the most powerful black unions for a good chunk of the 20th century. Um, and in a way, so it sort of makes sense then that she's sort of growing up in these dual traditions of like her grandmother wanting her to sort of be able to move away from racial prejudice and um, her stepfather sort of in this long tradition of black labor activism. Uh, it makes sense that Diane is going to end up being in this place where she is going to be doing a lot of not- um so she grows up in chicago um is raised catholic grows up attending catholic schools um when she goes off to college she's going to spend a year at howard university in dc uh, but is going to decide to transfer to fisk university which at this point i think our listeners should just know we have so many fisk connections on this podcast the, um in particular it's where constant uh, Baker Motley is going to be about two decades before uh, Nash will get there. It's also where Ellis Shepard is. Um, so it has this incredibly long tradition of being a place that produces leaders and activists. Um, and it also is this place where young black students from other parts of the country come to Nashville, Tennessee, and really for the first time, a lot of them experience sort of the most vicious version of what Jim Crow segregation looks like, particularly students who are coming from northern cities where discrimination definitely exists and is a sort of persistent factor in their life, but isn't quite the same as the like incredibly overt system that you have in the South at this time. She is there in um, sort of the early 1960s, um, and she meets a divinity student named James Lawson, who's a civil rights activist and organizer, um, but sort of more importantly for Nash, he spent time in India and actually learned about nonviolence from Gandhi and from sort of seeing Gandhi's protest campaigns against Britain and is back in Nashville teaching civil rights activists nonviolence. Um, and it's interesting because Nash, she's reflecting on this experience in an interview um, and says that she's not really convinced nonviolence is going to work, given what she knows about America. Uh, but she says, quote, I kept going to the workshops because I couldn't find anyone else who was trying to do anything else. Um, so in a way, sort of falls into this because she's this is the only group she sees doing anything. Um, but very quickly, she's going to discover that this is really the path that she's interested in following. Um, And particularly because February of 1960 is when the sit-in campaigns in lunch counters across the South start. Um, So Nash is actually one of the students in Nashville who organizes the Nashville sit-ins. And this is where um, 
black, usually college students, would go to lunch counters um, in white-owned businesses that would refuse to serve them. And they would just sit at the counter um, until they were served or until they were kicked out. Um, and it was sort of an effort to desegregate some of those public spaces. Um, and I think as we sort of talked about a little bit earlier, um, they start out being both nonviolent and peaceful in the sense that like the students show up and are doing this form of nonviolent protest. And the response from the businesses is very much sort of peaceful. Like they won't serve them. They refuse to do business with them, but they also just let them sit there and don't do anything about it. Um, but pretty soon they become more violent as um, other white people show up and start disrupting the protests, um, yelling, jeering. Sometimes they would even assault students. Um, and the police would routinely fail to arrest the white people even after they assaulted the students. Um, but the students were regularly arrested for loitering, disorderly conduct, basically anything the police could think of to throw them in jail. And so this goes on for a couple of months um, until in April, um, the home of a prominent black lawyer in Nashville is bombed. This is a pretty common practice during the civil rights movement in the South for white supremacists to bomb the homes or businesses or churches of local black leaders as sort of an attempt to shut down or suppress protest. Um, and in response to this, Nash and a few of her co-workers organize a huge silent march through the city. So um, they march through downtown, totally silenced, and then they come to City Hall where the mayor is sort of standing on the steps. And a couple of the activists, including Nash, go up to speak with him. And at one point, she just asks him point blank if he feels that discriminating against people based on their race is immoral. Uh, and he agrees with her. He says that it is. Um, and it's sort of this comment from him combined with the march combined with a boycott of the stores downtown that had refused to integrate that sort of pushes Nashville to integrate. And so a couple of weeks later in May, uh, all of the businesses across the city that have lunch counters agree to integrate them. Um, and there's this sort of interesting moment that Nash reflects on afterwards where after the black boycott, a lot of these business owners are worried that once they desegregate, um, white people are going to boycott sort of in response to them desegregating. And so she's at a meeting. Uh, some of the business owners raise this concern. And she's like, okay, I got you. And she says she sort of goes out and finds some nice old white ladies and asks them to come sit at the counter and have lunch every day for a week um, at a couple of the businesses around town. And they do. And sort of this show of support from these old white ladies helps avoid uh, sort of boycott from upset white people who are mad at having to share civil rights with others. Um, I just thought that was sort of a really interesting bit of pragmatism on her part. Like, I think we often think of nonviolent protest as this sort of very idealistic way of approaching things. But at the same time, she's like, okay, you're worried about this. I have an idea. We can fix it. Like, we'll, we'll get the old white ladies involved, which I just like appreciate as being like a, a very much like, well, we got to get it done. How do we get it done? Kind of approach to things. It's as a result of sort of this work in Nashville, getting lunch counters desegregated, um, that Nash is actually going to become involved in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, which is one of my favorite mid-century acronyms. Can I ask a stupid question about the civil rights movement? Like, why the lunch counter? Yeah. Easy to infiltrate or easy to... Easy 
calm, well, not easy. It was a very hard thing to do, but like a commonplace. I don't, it seemed strategic, but I don't know if that, I just, we don't know lunch counters in the same way uh, as today. It, it, there's clarity. I'm just, you know, it's more of like a yeah, nerd, I mean, nerd question than anything super deep. But I think part of it is definitely this idea that a lot of the protests are meant to draw attention. And so this is a very public space that a lot of people are going in and out of and it's hard to it's like it's clear right yeah and i think the other thing too is it's not that these businesses refused to serve african-americans like you could shop they were often kind of like department stores so like you could shop there or you could get food there um Mm -hmm. but african-americans weren't allowed to eat like they had to do takeout or sit in certain areas exactly and so it's a it's a protest mostly of like you're happy to take our money but you're not willing to acknowledge that like we should have the right to like sit and eat our meal here. What is the difference? How is this equal? Yeah, I think it's right. The- it's that right more than anything. It's like the separate but equal thing. Is it equal? Mm-hmm. I can get the food, but I'm not allowed to eat it here. Yeah, right. And I think it's that's the presence. Why. <sighs> uh, and it's weird. yeah, and I think it's it's a it's a definitely a different inflected thing now that we have a slightly different relationship with takeout. Oh, because of the last couple of months. So maybe. <laughs> Who wants to be in a restaurant right now? Yeah. All these poor servers and restaurant owners and stuff. I do want to be there. I do. Just don't. I want to, you know. Or, yeah. oh. oh, okay. So that's. So lunch counters. So lunch counters. And I think your sense of like separate but equal is very much like the focal point of a lot of the sort of early 60s actions. Because you get all of those rulings in the late 50s where courts don't necessarily say like racism is bad but what they do say is separate but in, but unequal is unconstitutional and so it's using that set of rulings to try to drive change um and right. so the basically the pressure points they're looking at are places where there is separate but unequal treatment happening and that's what they're going after and it's, it's interesting because they'll do that. Obviously, like the sort of the most famous version of that is the Freedom Rides in 61 um, mm-hmm. about like busing and transportation. Um, but there's a bunch of different examples, like lunch counters, like voting is definitely another one. Um, and education where like you're taking that ruling and then trying to basically force the government to enforce it. And part of that is sort of this group of students, Nash included, who realize that like that kind of direct action is really effective and they want to do that kind of work, but they don't necessarily feel like there's a space for them in existing civil rights organizations um, because they tend to be led by people who are a little bit older. Um, They tend to be dominated by clergy in particular. Mm -hmm. And so they want an organization that's responsive to their needs and that can organize students, which is where, SNCC is born out of. It's basically this desire to be on an equal footing with the other civil rights organizations and work alongside them, but not necessarily have to listen to them and let students sort of drive the organizing that they want to do. Mm -hmm. So Nash is actually basically going to leave college and work for SNCC full time starting in 1961. Sorry, SNCC just makes me laugh. It's because I think of Nickelodeon. Was that what it was? Mm hmm. Didn't they do stuff on, like, what was it? Weekends? Like, I'm trying to remember now. I might have to Google that in a second. It had something to do with, like, Nick at Night or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a choice for, an, like, a, the way to talk about your acronym. But if you have no vowels in your acronym, I guess you just kind of have to make it 
work. I'm sorry. Let's segue for a second. Two-hour programming block on the American Cable Television Network, Nickelodeon, that ran from 1992 to 2005. Saturdays at 8. So it was like late night for kids. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> Late night on the weekend for kids, and you'd watch it at a sleepover in the 90s. Yeah, that's like peak sleepover time for me. So, mm-hmm. um, sorry, that was a segue. Um, <laughs> but that's what I think of when I think of Snick. Noted. I will, that will be the image um, of this my is head. A better, say that. This is a better thing. Where were we? <laughs> <laughs> I think we were in 1961. Oof, way before Snick. Okay, great. So, other Snick, not Nickelodeon Snick. Also, do you, I'm sorry. Do you know my favorite acronym of all time? No. Because I have one, because that's the kind of nerd I am. I love that about you. What is it? It was when Nixon was running for re-election, and it was the committee to re-elect the president, and it was called Creep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were all <laughs> fine with it. And everyone was fine with that. All of his people were like, yeah, we're going to call it Creep, and we're going to love it. Wow. Tone deaf much? A okay. little bit. And I love that because that was going to be my go-to example as well. Oh, it's just, so good. It's so good because it's so bad. Like, do you guys have PR at this point? Probably not. I don't think, I don't think so. That's just a sign of how the times have changed. Like, you couldn't have that in a Twitter environment. No. No, no, you no. Just, it's, like, it's like listening to... Um, a substitute teacher when the kids full when the classroom's full of hooligans like they're not gonna let you get a word in edgewise Mm-mm. no matter what your foundations are for that acronym it's we're not moving past it. this is what we're <laughs> going to talk about for the next hour so dumb anyway back to our lady yes so nash in 1961 is working full-time for snick uh, <laughs> she's directing their direct action wing and in February of that year, nine students are jailed for doing a sit-in in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And so she mm-hmm. goes with three other activists and they sit in at the same restaurant, also get arrested, and all four of them refuse bail as a way of sort of drawing attention to the case. Basically, this idea that like we're not going to participate in the process because we think the process is unjust mm-hmm. and using that to sort of call more attention to what's happening. Um, and she is basically going to do a very similar thing again later that year. Um, she's down in Mississippi. Um, she's also four months pregnant with her first child. Um, Mm -hmm. and she is arrested for contributing to the delinquency of minors, which, right, you would think that's like... What is a delinquent? Is that a legal term? What does that constitute? I think it's like the sort of general term for like doing things you're not supposed to be doing. That is like fairly broad Well, that's very subjective yes and the thing that she's doing that gets her arrested is she's training students in nonviolent protest which is obviously a very delinquent thing to be oh doing. it's like someone uh showing or characterized by a tendency to commit crime particularly a minor crime mm. so little shenanigan kids okay. yeah um, what are the shenanigans? Sitting at lunch counters? Mm-hmm. And four little... teaching kids to sit at lunch counters. Um, mm-hmm. She's facing a two-year prison sentence. That makes sense if the crimes are weird. You know? Mm-hmm. Like sitting at a lunch counter. But there's just a scale, right? Yeah, that there's feels proportionate scale. in some horrific, weird sense. Yeah. Um, but when she goes to her trial... Uh, so it turns out you don't just have to sit in the back of the bus. You also have to sit in the back of the courtroom. 
and she refuses to do that. And so rather than letting the trial continue, the white judge sentences her to 10 days in jail for contempt of court. Um, and so she spends 10 days in jail, pregnant. Um, mm. But when those 10 days are up, rather than continuing her trial, they just let her go. Uh, apparently realizing that putting a pregnant woman in jail for two years for nonviolent protesting would not be a great look for Mississippi, uh, particularly when SNCC has really close connections to a lot of black celebrities like Harry Belafonte. Hey, here they come. Who could make things not great. And while Nixon and Creep might have not known what PR was, at this point, the Southern states are starting to clue in that like PR is going to be the thing that gets them. Because that's sort of the whole, the whole point of a lot of these civil rights actions is to raise publicity and sort of bring attention to what's going on. And Mississippi kind of clues in at this moment that like it would be a really bad look if everyone spent a couple of weeks talking about how they locked up a pregnant woman for teaching college students how to protest. So 1961 is a busy year for Nash. So she's arrested in February. She's arrested again that summer. Uh, and then later that summer, um, the Congress of Racial Equality, uh, or CORE, uh, is organizing the Freedom Rides. So those sort of famous moment when in an effort to get the federal government to enforce rulings about interstate transport, a group of black and white activists organized these series of bus rides through the South in an attempt to desegregate those facilities. Um, this is um, sort of John Lewis's big step into the spotlight in organizing these. Um, but they're met with violence and opposition across the South and in Birmingham, Alabama, the bus they're riding is actually firebombed. And so in yeah. response to that and out of concern for the safety of the riders, CORE suspends the program to try to figure out what to do next. Nash thinks they should keep going. And so working with John Lewis, she actually organizes a group of university students in Nashville and other activists from New Orleans and other places where she's been working um, to resume the rides and to keep sort of pushing forward with that campaign. Um, and the federal government at this point is like really worried. Uh, she's talking with um, RFK, who is the um, attorney general at this point, working with one of his special assistants to try to make sure like that they can coordinate the rider's safety. Because um, obviously it's a really bad look if people are just trying to exercise what are supposed to be federally protected rights and they're getting assaulted and their bus is getting lit on fire. Mm -hmm. I mean... It's also awful because like they're human beings uh but the federal government at this point is really worried about like what is the pr look of this particular thing and it's bad so they're trying to figure out a way to like let it continue let it wrap up and what they actually try to do is basically offer support in return for stopping it like they're like we will pay for voter registration efforts if you promise to stop doing these freedom rides and mm -hmm. nash is like no we're gonna keep doing this because this is our right and this is what we have planned and it's Sort of and you should you. be doing the other thing anyway. Right. It's like on you to do your job. So like if you guys were doing your job, we wouldn't have to do this. So maybe you should do mm. your job. Um, and so when the they gather in Birmingham to continue the rides uh, for about 40 miles or so, they have 
sort of police protection. It seems like the sort of agreements they'd come to about letting this continue are going to happen. Um, but at a certain point, that all sort of disappears, and they're instead met by a white mob and attacked. And it's that next evening that Martin Luther King, who has sort of been a little bit wary about endorsing the Freedom Rides, he's, a, I think, mm-hmm. a little bit worried about sort of committing to that movement, um, gives this very powerful speech where he endorses their movements while at the same time there's like a white mob rioting outside the church he's speaking in. And that's sort of the moment when the core volunteers and SNCC and King's group, which is the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, all come together and like, yes, this is a thing. Even if we disagree necessarily on how to do, you know, our particular type of activism, we agree that like this is a campaign we want to support. And Nash is sort of crucial in getting King to make that speech and into bringing him on board with this project. Um, Even though she doesn't necessarily love that his organization is dominated by dudes who mostly tend to be clergy, she's happy enough to like be able to get his support for this when the moment calls for it. It's a pretty busy year. She's like (laughs) got a lot going on Mm -hmm. in 1961. Mm -hmm. Of course, as is pretty typical, uh, not necessarily going to slow down after that. So in 1963, she's appointed by JFK uh, to a committee that's meant to help promote civil rights legislation. They're trying to get the Civil Rights Act passed, uh, which they do in 1964. Um, in 1964, working with um, her husband, James Bevel, she proposes a plan to register every Black adult in Alabama to vote. Um, and as we learned with Fannie Lou Hamer in Mississippi, even though, right, this is technically a thing that should be okay, the idea of registering Black voters in the Deep South is a really radical proposition. And it is so radical, in fact, that they find a lot of trouble getting support mm-hmm. in their organizations to do this. They're like, you can't, this will never work. Like, we can't manage this at this point. Um mm-hmm. And it's kind of, it's, to my mind, a really great example, again, of, like, we kind of think of, like, nonviolence as being the the less radical of the two options, right? Like, you can, like, go out and protest, or you can, like, go out and smash things, and, like, one of those is maybe the easier choice. But there's this proposal she types up for, like, what her plan is for Alabama, and it is radical. Um <laughs> Their two objectives are radical removing George Wallace from his position as governor and registering every 21 year old and up black voter in the state. Is that okay? I'm not that mad at it. (laughs) No, but their plan is to do it by uh, surrounding the state capitol and not letting anyone in or out. uh, Not great. Keeping all of the telephone lines busy by calling and um talking to representatives about quote freedom which i love um lying on railroad tracks runways and at bus stations to cut off public transportation organizing a general workers strike refusing to pay taxes my favorite one wear overalls and something black at all times parentheses armbands maybe which i think like a good coordinated outfit is an important important thing Mm -hmm. um 
establish mass meetings several times a week, demonstrations aimed at federal government, demonstrations at the United Nations. And then the sort of miscellaneous notes include, this is an army, develop a flag and an insignia or pin or button. And then a little further down, ask Kennedy not to recognize Wallace's government and cut off federal funds. Ooh. So it's like... That's a little radical. It Right? It's, it's nonviolent. And it is also incredibly radical. That is extreme. Yeah. And I am kind of in love with this document because it's just like a page and a half. But it's this plan for basically trying to shut down the, the ability of the state of Alabama to function until they are able to get everyone who wants to vote the ability to vote. Yeah. Which, you know, had they been allowed to do it, I would have been really interested to see how it went. Um, but the sort of middle ground they land on is they don't let her try to shut down the state of Alabama, mm-hmm. which like I would have been there for. Uh, <laughs> but instead they organize the sort of famous now um, Selma to Montgomery marches in 1965, mm-hmm. which are meant to draw attention to voting rights um, and as our way of sort of bringing media attention to the issue. Um, these are the marches where um, the protesters get attacked at the Edmund Pettus Bridge and it's the thing that pushes um, Johnson to push for the pass of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Um, and so she is sort of one of the key people organizing those marches. So it's this kind of cool thing where, like, she is, in a lot of ways, the, like, organizational force behind a lot of these really key civil rights moments, uh, even though she isn't necessarily the one at the forefront on the front lines, but is doing the really crucial work of, like, organizing people and making sure that like there is the like logistical and infrastructure backing needed to do these kind of mass protest campaigns which like as a stage manager i resonate with pretty deeply (laughs) big fan (laughs) big fan of logistics yes we are Mm -hmm. um i think the other interesting thing which i definitely need to sort of keep more in mind when i'm reading about this period um is that the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement are pretty closely tied. Um, And so she actually travels to North Vietnam in 1966 to sort of meet with um, government officials there as part of sort of anti-war protests. Controversial. Very controversial. Um, But I think this sort of, this idea that like, if you're going to be nonviolent, that has to go through all aspects of politics. I mean, our dear friend Jeanette Rankin protested the Vietnam War. Mm Mm-hmm pacifist till the day she died also inspired by gandhi there we go i mean it's a through line of the 20th century yeah and also unrelated but jeanette rankin Mm -hmm. was in the crossword this week was she yeah what was the clue uh something about uh a woman voting for other women to vote yes very happy i didn't even have to google how to spell her name because i can never remember which set of letters in jeanette get doubled and it is the N and the, the N's T. and the T's, right? Yep. Nailed it. Diane. So as the 60s are drawing to a close, she is beginning to sort of step away from the national movement, uh, in large part because she's having these disagreements with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is King's organization, um, about their leadership structure, the sort of male-dominated, clergy-dominated nature of it. Um, and as well as the sort of direction of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Commission, which um, at this point is being led by Stokely Carmichael and is moving away from 
the sort of nonviolent actions of the early 60s into a slightly different direction. Um, so in 1968, sometime between 1968 and 1970, um, she divorces her husband and moves back to Chicago, where she becomes a housing rights activist. So working with residents primarily on the South Side um, to sort of push for better and more dignified public housing. Um, and that's largely the work she's continued to do to this day. Um, she's still sort of supporting civil rights work, particularly um, Black Lives Matter and protests against police brutality. Uh, she coordinates the annual memorial for Andrew Goodman, Michael Henry Schwenner, and James Earl Cheney, um, who are the three civil rights activists who were murdered yeah. outside of Philadelphia, Mississippi in 64. So yeah. she's one of the people who organizes the annual memorial for them. That was kind of a big one, right? Because it was two white guys or one white yeah, guy? Yeah, two white two guys and a black guy who were murdered yeah. um, and is sort of one of the big instigating things for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Because they were just, they were trying to get people to vote, right? Mm -hmm. That's when they were there. And they were sort of lynched, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the cases, it's one of the many, like, civil rights related cases where no one's ever been. Is that what, is that what Mississippi Burning's about? Do you know that movie? I don't, but if I had to take a guess, I would I say. I think you should watch it since you've done a lot of civil rights stuff. It's Gene Hackman. It's 1980s, but it's about, I think it's about that case hmm. where it's the FBI going in. Is it the FBI? Yes. Going in and um, investigating the disappearance and murder by the KKK in that case. Yeah, um, I definitely have to. But it's Gene Hackman doing his Gene Hackmanist mm -hmm. performance, I think, where he's sort of like kind of a cop you don't like, but he's, you know, he's not necessarily down with the nonviolent aspect of uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> justice. Um, but I remember it being quite good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the sort of, yeah. But I think it's about the context of those three mm -hmm. murders. Yeah, I will definitely have to check that out. We've got... Now that I'm back in my apartment, have lots, lots more time to watch, watch some more movies. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to close. Um, so she's still with us. Um, and in 2017. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, which again, is just a reminder like this 30, is. 38, you said? Mm -hmm. I only remember it because you yelled it. <laughs> so 38. So she's probably, she's what? In her 80s? I can do math. 82. 82. Oh, man, I need a nap, clearly. Can't do 2020 minus 1938. It's okay. 82. 82. Oh, what's um, she doing now? So she, a nana? Um, so she is still um, sort of doing civil rights work. She One of the like more recent things she did um, was help fundraise to investigate um, the murder of an indigenous man in police custody, actually in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Um, and you know, has been sort of supportive of Black Lives Matter protests um, and has this really great interview with The Guardian in 2017, um, sort of talking about a bit about her legacy and the connections to today. Um, and she has this great quote that I think is a good place to leave. Um, you listening to this, it's not right before the election, but for us mm -hmm. speaking this is right before the election. Um, and she says, um, unfortunately, many Americans have left it to elected officials to do what needs to be done in society. And that won't work. I think the students who are marching today understand that. Can you imagine if we had waited for elected officials to desegregate lunch counters and to get the right to vote in the South? 50 some years later, I think we'd still be waiting, which 
I think is just like a really good reminder that voting is important, but there are other important ways to pressure politicians to do things. And we need to keep all of those tools available if we want to get the kind of change that we want to see. Yeah. That is Diane Nash. That's awesome. Way to go, Diane. That's cool. I like it. So that ends the Kamala Harris mm-hmm. list from her speech. Yes. So, sort of sent you on a, on a sent you on a little streak there. Yeah, a cool little dive into some civil rights movement history that I didn't know as well as I should have. So it's been really fun to dig into that and cool to sort of see how the three women are connected and how they're connected to Kamala Harris, but also sort of to the like broader movement for women's involvement in civil rights generally which Mm -hmm. as we've seen like time and time again on this podcast is like a really significant involvement that often doesn't get its due in the sort of histories we learn in school amazing cool should we take a break yeah let's do that cool yeah let's do it so i did a little um I, I, I started with a Google and I was like, let's do African-Americans. And I was like, no, let's not do, let's just open it up and see what we get. And so I found some like um, forgotten women from African history. And that is uh, oh, very cool. Ap- America's quote unquote, but also like some queens of old. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did land on this one lady who is actually has a lot to, a lot to do with Jamaica. And that sent me on a spin of, kind of Jamaican independence and and the history of Jamaica, which is um, kind of lumped in with a lot of other Caribbean knowledge. And I think we've discovered here, but also like through our own journeys of history that um, each country in the kind of Caribbean, like Dominican Republic, Haiti, Jamaica, all of those Bahamian Island kind of lands. It's, it's got very interesting in my, in my view, very interesting colonial history and it's sort it's very uh similar to the united states in a lot of ways it's very unique in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and each kind of each kind of country deserves its own kind of look if you're interested um because kind of different things happen on all of them but play to each other's identity in a lot of ways yeah um, so this is and i just this is me being mm-hmm. super ignorant is jamaica yeah. it's a former british colony yes but it was originally Spanish. Okay. So, uh, yeah, we'll get into it. So, do you have a do you have a year to yell at me? Do I have a year? Not really. The main thing I should tell you at the start of this is that uh, most of the history of this particular woman it was oral tradition mm-hmm. and not steeped in a lot of written fact. And if you think about the people uh, writing things down in the 1600s, they're probably not native Jamaicans and or. Former slaves. So no, I have to the guess language white around the language around this is probably very skewed as um, interpreted by 16th century and 17th century landowners. So <laughs> who are British? Spain. Yeah, Spain first quote unquote discovered whatever Jamaica. Um, Christopher Columbus technically saw Jamaica on his way over and claimed the island for Spain because that's how they rolled in the 1490s. So the 1500s through about mid 17th century, it's a Spanish colony. Um, and like all things at that time frame, the the slave trade is taking off. Um, I think 
the United States cites the first African slave as 1616. So the sixteen nineteen sixteen nineteen is that what it is? I think so. Did I invert that? Yeah, sixteen nineteen. So by the sixteen fifties, the slave trade is kind of going all around, and the Caribbean is definitely a big hot point of that, of like drop off and take off, and the sugar cane and you know all of the exports from those island uh, economies make it quite a healthy, lucrative business for Spain. Um, with Jamaica in particular. As early as 1512, um, enslaved Africans would escape uh, quite frequently in the New World as as best they could because, go figure, no one wants to be a slave. And um, this is also a time as um, the Spanish are trying to like deal with domestic issues of their slaves running away. They also have the English encroachment happening on the Caribbean. So what eventually happens is the English defeat the Spanish... Mm-hmm. take control of the colony of Jamaica and also kind of use the chaos of like what was happening on the ground to help them in that. So there's some cases of the British having these uh, freed Africans fight the Spanish for, you know, there's sort of like interesting loyalty is interesting at the time. And it's not super detailed, but I think you do whatever you can till you get in power and then you equally oppress or enslave them again, because that's the way it works. Mm-hmm. But there's this history of, a whole culture forming in that enslaved Africans would escape these plantations. And Jamaica has a lot of mountainous regions mm-hmm. and hills hills, and very dense jungle. Not even jungle, but just gen- dense terrain and difficult terrain. So it actually lent itself to being easily um, fortified. And so, and also I think what we all forget because as of today, I think 92% of Jamaica's population is considered black, is that there are indigenous people on this island mm-hmm. of American heritage, Native American heritage. So both sections of that sort of culture found a mutual need for each other in defying the colonizers. So that's how you see the kind of... Um, cultural shift to be like uh, more mixed in terms of like the African slaves and the native Americans. They had a very assimilating relationship of those two racial groups Mm -hmm. and they get start to become their own entity and they're called Jamaican maroons as in the color. Um, I have it written somewhere of what maroon is meant to mean. There is uh, some, some people say it has to, it's like uh, it was dubbed by the like Spanish or English as like feral, but it's also like fugitive. Yeah, it's a, a, a term for like a, a fugitive. So you can say who figured out what words we should call people. Um, they would probably call themselves free, but that becomes their sort of identity mm-hmm. at that point, and that's going to play into where we head because there are some maroon wars that might occur. Um, and there's different subsects of maroons. So there's like the windward maroons and there's this section. Each section of the island kind of has their own groupings mm-hmm. as the 17th century goes on. And the best part about this is it there's a maroon community that plays a really significant role in season three of Black Sails. So this is a great Oh, they tie. do? Your favorite not, tie-in. Not to, not to do any spoilers, but yes. And the, Okay, so this isn't completely foreign to you. No. Okay, cool. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, and it's cool to know because like they... Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, it's a mixing of sort of indigenous so, peoples and escape yeah. Stories. So there's a there's a really um, prevalent tendency of interracial marriage. Uh, I think for mutual aid and 
everyone kind of benefits because there's clearly clearly a common enemy that is trying to oppress, dominate, and dehumanize. Mm -hmm. They have a lot in common is what I'm trying to say. Um, There's also, I mean, because of the nature of where they went physically on the island, there was a lot of benefit into being together because it was such um, difficult terrain. Uh, They would frequently escape to the Maroon Territory and it was known as Cockpit Country because it had steep-sided hollows and deep, deep hills and ridges so that um, it was naturally defensible, Mm -hmm. which is helpful when you're kind of on the defense all the time against this vastly overwhelmingly funded and outfitted empire. Yeah, the British Um, not really known for messing around. No, 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 no. But they have they have a rough 18th century. A lot of people don't like them. Very true. Very <laughs> I wonder true. why. So we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the Jamaican version of things. A lot of the slaves imported in general were from the west coast of Africa and the Gold Coast particularly. Um, one dominant group were the Ashanti people, which are a group, uh, ethnic group of Africans in what is modern day Ghana. And I did a little bit of research on, like, what does it mean to be Ashanti? What is that tribal identity known as? And I just, there's just so much. I probably didn't do enough to uh, speak to it. But the couple hit notes I found is there is a tendency and a, uh, not a tendency, but there's a history of matrilineal organization within their family groups. And there is a lot of prestige and honor given to women. In the Ashanti people, there's also um, a Khan, A-K-A-N, which I believe is a religious group within the Ashanti people. And I didn't get quite into what do they believe, what don't they believe. But I think that that has to do a lot as well in, t- in terms of like tracking descendants through the female line and being sort of matrilineal. It doesn't seem, from what I read, it doesn't seem like it is female politically led. Mm. There is a lot of, I read one article, which I couldn't verify as to its like source materials, so take it for what you will, but I did read something where it reminded me of the sultans when I did, um, totally. where, where the king would be a king, but his mother would have immense power mm-hmm. and he couldn't necessarily rule without her presence or guiding force. And, um, yeah, I know it's, it made me want to do a lot more research into it, but there were a lot of, um. Very detailed research papers that I wanted to read, but I did not have time to read about the Ashanti people. So that brings us to the lady that I want to talk about, who is known as Queen Nanny. Okay. Which I'm sure sounds a lot better and not an American accent. And pretty much every other accent would be good. So Queen Nanny uh, is, we think, is born around the 1680s. And um, they also believe was born in Africa and enslaved. Whether she came over or as a slave or was came over free and then became a slave. It's unclear. Like I said, a lot of this is sort of folk hero Mm -hmm. descendant stuff or not quite documented in a way that would hold up to like rigorous historians. She quickly becomes one of the five. She come, she and her five brothers, which is quote unquote, five leaders of other maroon communities around Jamaica. She is the only woman amongst them. So of these men, it's Kudjo, Akampong, uh, Kuffy, Kwao, which are all um, different names. I was reading it like the the 
a couple of them, their names refer to the day of the week on which they're born. Oh, cool. So one of them is called Monday. One of them is called Thursday, technically. Um, but they all kind of take over different areas of the island with their, within, well, not take over, but they become leaders of these uh, indigenous and African people mm-hmm. areas of the, that the Maroons had held on to. And she's part of what they would be known as the Windward Maroons, which is on the east side of the island um, in what would be eventually become Nanny. It was called Nanny Town, a settlement within the hills where they had a whole economy. And they would actually go out and with the local communities that were available to them and not overtly militarized, they would trade and they would participate in economies, but still remain relatively insular. Um, but there was some camaraderie with like, I don't know who else is owning land there, Mm -hmm. but there's a development of a culture outside of British rule in a way. So they're not like once the army starts getting involved, all of a sudden it gets more hostile, but Mm -hmm. there seems to be a community base happening and a friendliness with maybe the people. If you're just a farmer in, I'm just thinking like if you're a farmer in Jamaica, you're not a big plantation owner. You're not, you're just a weaver in town. Mm Mm-hmm. Are you going to have a problem with the Maroons? Not really. They're going to come down and sell you their goods, and you're going to sell them some goods, and you both are going to survive. You Mm -hmm. don't really have a military agenda against them. So those kinds of contexts are happening at a limited level, but there is, like, they're not completely isolated, I guess is my point. Yeah, and in terms of, like, size and scale, do you have a sense of, like, how big these communities might be? Ooh, that is a good question. Let me look up Nanny Town. It's no longer... They relocated for reasons that we will get into. Mm-hmm. Again, working off my black sales experience here, which, as we know, is like rigorously historically researched. Like, I, my sense is they could get pretty big, um, but I imagine they can't get too big because then. I, mean, I think it's... I don't have numbers. Is the short answer? Uh, the word maroon first recorded in English in 1666 is, by varying accounts, taken from the French word marron which translates to runaway black slave or the American Spanish Cimarron, which is a wild runaway slave. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a derogatory term or living on mountaintops. So Mm. very, very uh, topical for this time. Mm -hmm. The Spanish originally used the word in reference to their stray cattle. Charming. Uh, It's further believed that the word Cimarron is from Cima or Summit. So if you care about etymology, there's that. How big were they in population, though? The the one the thing I found is like they could be sort of around like anywhere from like a hundred people to like a couple of thousand in other in like Brazil and other places. But like, yeah, definitely. Like, okay, cool. So it's not it's not just like thirty people hanging out. It's like sizable groups of people. Okay, so. Let's get back to Queen Nanny. Mm-hmm. So she comes over to Jamaica. This is all apocryphal after the fact. At some point, she uh, flees or somehow gets to the Maroon community. And within that Maroon community, and some people think because she's probably of Ashanti heritage, there's a lot of matrilineal uh, heritage there. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it does not surprise people that she becomes of note. And um, begins to organize her community in a way that is um, alongside growing tensions with the British. So the way these tensions eventually rise is that the British think the Maroons need to be brought to 
whatever they need to be. We have, we're losing all this money. Look at all the slaves in the hills. We have to get them back in their place that we think is decided by us. So this, you know, and maybe a independent community doesn't really vibe with that. So it's interesting that we were talking about violence earlier. Violence occurs um, and it turns into the first Maroon War. So Queen Nanny is with Quao, Q-U-A-O, sometimes called her brother. It's not sure if that is a term of endearment or like a genuine she is blood relation to him. But they control an area in the Blue Mountains um, called the Windward Maroons, as I said earlier. Uh, it's later called Nanny Town. It becomes a strategic location um, because of it is nestled so uh, perfectly. In the se- that's about 1720. 1728, British are like, we got to send more troops. Let's get in there. There's just, there's an outbalance of power. We're going to send a major general and his name is Robert Hunter. Perfect name. You can see the villain in the movie, right? He's got a big old red coat on. He's got a sneery British accent. It's it's excellent. And for some reason, while he's there, conflicts escalate. I wonder why. Shocking. Um, it's from both sides, genuinely, because uh, there's, there's attacks and raids um, on the British, and then the British try to get up into the mountains and attack back, and it's... It doesn't go great. Uh, British continually get ambushed and uh, lose. It's not said in that way, but get totally uh, annihilated by what the com. If you were a British soldier at the time, you would not think that a quote unquote, according to you, like primitive living group. I, I don't know. Say whatever derogatory terms you want of how they would view this settlement of like Native American and African escapee slaves. They're not thinking they're the most advanced militarily. They're not outfitted with the guns and knives and shiny coats that the British are. So I think some of this might be a little bit of um, pride, (laughs) not being prepared, not giving enough respect to your quote unquote enemy, because there's just constant stories of them getting um, absolutely ambushed and, also, it's a time where, like, the rules of warfare are very Eurocentric and specific. Mm, of course, and yeah. odd. Right, and like, you show up odd. You show up on the field. At, like, you show up on a field, time. you line up, you put all the poor people in the front, and you have them get shot at each other. And then you get the rich guys in the back on horses that don't get hurt. And then you, you just kind of pile into each other. For some reason, there's, like, decorum and things of that nature. I don't get it. Um... The Maroons are not interested in that level of warfare because they're smart. <laughs> they know, like, hmm, who would win in that scenario? I wonder. No, I'm going to stay in my mountains and, like, we are going to situate our town so that there is only one physical entrance by nature mm-hmm. that you can actually get in. What is that? Really defensible fort kind of scenarios. And we're going to use um, the natural hillsides to benefit us. So uh, this guy, Lieutenant Soper, gets in. He, they get ambushed. He leads a large force against uh, her specific group of Maroons, and they're ambushed and slaughtered. Um, of the 95 men that Soper takes in, uh, less than half survive in this particular ambush in, 19, er, in 1730. Oof, that's rough. Uh, so what does the British do? They send more regiments in to fight more. Tensions escalate. Um there's not a lot of great detail about Queen Nanny, but you can tell that they don't like that they're being beaten by an African woman. And um, a lot of the 
accounts of her start to make her this like mystical witch. Mm-hmm. Like there's no way that she could have these tactics honestly. So she must be possessed by the devil or is a pagan witch doctor nonsense stuff. I think um, we call that being a sore loser at this yes, point. Yes, for sure. So let's talk about some of the tactics they use. These will not seem revolutionary to our brains, but for an 18th century British man, these this stuff blew their minds. Who would think to fight this way? She used a range of physical ideas to attack these uh, military regiments. Um, people cite her now as an expert strategist and would seed confusion and fear as a tactic, most, most especially. So one specific thing was camouflage. Her soldiers were proficient in disguising their location and there are tale there's like oral history from British soldiers that the trees would become alive and like all of a sudden there'd be somebody next to you and they'd chop your head off. Like so guerrilla warfare like times a thousand with a lot of like creepy vibes right it's yeah. it's like a one step away from a horror movie um, i mean and we don't have to keep bringing it back to black sails but i think i'm probably going to because it seems like <laughs> their writers read your your copy for this episode but there's a scene in black sails where like all of a sudden like literally out of the like jungle floor all of these maroons just like pop up out of nowhere and start stabbing british redcoats it's 100 percent guerrilla warfare because like i said like they're wearing bright red coats in the jungle. They're hard to miss. Like you just, it's, I mean, like you can say she was an expert in military strategy, but also like the tactics the British were using were probably pretty stupid. <laughs> um, it's a little, a tit for tat, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but also like we don't have guerrilla war, like to credit to the British, like guerrilla warfare is not part of their training or understanding. Like they wouldn't expect to see that. That has, no one's experienced this before in this way. That's also the way a lot of American soldiers ended up succeeding in the colonies is that it was home turf they weren't as richly outfitted so what did they have they had surprise and uh territory with which to like manipulate in their um in their favor so anyway camouflage uh the trees became alive is like the spooky haunted horror story of it um they were able, they figured out really smart ways of making um, stealthy ways to make fires so they wouldn't reveal their location. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we said before, their location within their settlements was really strategic so that it was properly protected and easily guarded so that they couldn't be ambushed themselves. In one example of when they were in, I don't think it was Nanny Town, it might have been when they relocated, the only way in was a narrow path that couldn't even fit two people side by side. Mm-hmm. Fortified areas. Uh, and where let me see. Oh, the other big um, advantage was they had great communications within their community, and that was through the use of a a cow's horn called an abeng, a b e n g, and the horn had like holes drilled into one side and could be blasted over immense distance. And if you think like mountains and horns and yodeling and all that like it's Mm -hmm, it ricochets mm -hmm. off so then through certain signals maroon encampments could communicate locations and scouting over immense distances that the british couldn't cope with that's really cool so they the british didn't understand what the horns meant they didn't have their own version of that at this time so that that gave an advantage as well which i find interesting one other factor is that 
Queen Nanny's horses, they never killed everyone in um, the opposition. They left some people alive and sent them back with, like, I'm sure the horror stories of the trees coming alive mm-hmm. to be like, scare your friends, don't come find us. Um, so there's a little Brilliant. bit of mental terror happening as well. Which I'm not a fan of any of this, guys. I don't like telling this story at all. I hate that we have to hurt each other to progress. But, you know, it's important to learn and move on. So let's see. We're in the 1730s. The British uh, leader, Hunter, is sending um, parties to try and just keep breaking down and breaking down and breaking down these maroon territories. They, uh, It seems like a very... Um, nomadic life for the maroons at this time because as soon as they would settle the british would move in and they would have to move again and they would have and because they had the luxury of knowing the hills and mountains better it was easier for them to do that than to necessarily like fight every time Mm -hmm. there's still a lot of ambush the british have significant losses all through the 1730s this is now the official start and continuation of the first maroon war first implying that there's going to be another one they have uh different altercations in portland paris and saint george um, from what I've read, a lot of the pain is on the British side. It doesn't seem, there's one case where the British were able to ambush a settlement of Maroons and basically kill them in the night mm-hmm. while they were sleeping. But even then, the the death toll was, uh, some people cited as not even above 10 people. So the, the disproportionate um, force is pretty clear. Let's see. Uh, At this time as well, because of the conflict and the kind of continuous conflict and martial law happening in the British occupied areas of the island, it doesn't really necessarily make people want to live in Jamaica that are not, (laughs) that are white. People are leaving Jamaica to go to North America to kind of get away from all this conflict and, and kind of chaos. So the... I do have one number. So the population of white people in Jamaica by 1734 had fallen to 2000, which was also impacted the sugar exports and therefore the economy. Mm -hmm. And as we've seen over the summer, all of that stuff plays together and chaos ensues. Yeah. By 1737, the British are a little pissed (laughs) and don't like these uh, spooky trees and horn blasting in the the (laughs) mountains. They can't seem to get an upper hand. They are unable to win any significant victories. So, and they're also trying to like fortify what they know. So they're trying to build infrastructure and barracks and stuff. And the local community that's still there is not super interested in this sort of military Mm -hmm. giant forts that we're all living in. And so there's some stories of like planters in Jamaica refusing to take part in the funding of the military barracks. Um, because they've had a relationship with the Maroons this whole time and the Maroons give them goods and they have like, they're like, they don't cause us any problems. You want our money to build your b- barracks and like, what? who are we in this fight? So they're not getting a lot of local support either. Mm-hmm. Which is, that doesn't seem like a winning combination for them. If everyone on the yeah. island doesn't like you. Yeah. Well, it's getting there. So by 1739, the British decide like, okay, we can't win. It's disproportionately costly for us to try and win at this point. Um, So to not lose more money, we should just... We're going to send in a new British governor of Jamaica named Trelawney and uh, offer these different Maroon groups uh, peace treaties. So they get the leeward Maroon leader, whose name is Kudjo, C-U-D-G-O-E, J-O-E, sorry, um, 
And he is the first Maroon leader to sign a treaty with uh, the British for his particular grouping's independence and sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And um, because of the, as we said before, he was considered one of Queen Nanny's brothers, quote unquote brothers. So there is some camaraderie and understanding amongst the different Maroon factions on the island. So very quickly, um, the Windward Maroons, which are considered the more rebellious of all of the groups, which is Queen Nanny's group, agree to sign a treaty as well because the Maroons have vouched for them and uh, it seems like the correct move forward. So mm-hmm. that's a sort of end to tensions at this time in this way. I mean, I'm not into all tensions because there's another Maroon War, but this is sort of the end of the first cycle. Um, they had since... Move, her group of Windward Maroons had moved from Nanny Town to a new establishment called Moore Town, M-O-O-R-E, um, which is just farther. They're on the, like the east side of Jamaica, mm-hmm. past the island. It seems that she reigned from the 1740s till her passing away. They think um, she passed in 1760s, dying of natural causes. There's one case where people think that a faction of black soldiers loyal to Britain killed her and got rid of the witchy woman, but there's no evidence to actually Mm -hmm. support that. So most people think that she passed away later on in life and by all accounts ran ran her own, was part of the infrastructure of her own community within this Moor town with her fellow Maroons. Um, Part of the confusion with who she was and, who exactly was this queen nanny figure is because nanny is an honor title in this culture. Mm-hmm. And therefore oh, a lot of older women have that as well. But the commonplace folklore of it is there is only one queen nanny. And that is this woman, mm-hmm. this sort of specific military, military focused woman who helped um, beat back the British in the first Maroon War. There is a memorial to her where they think is her gravesite called bump grave in Moortown, and it has a plaque over it and they think that's where her remains are mm-hmm. um for the history of jamaica there was another uh maroon war in the early 1800s um by after that slavery was abolished and jamaicans gained suffrage but the british still held it as a territory for a long time uh, Marcus Garvey is a prominent uh, politician in the early 20th century who promotes black nationalism and becomes the leader of his country during the day. Um, the Great Depression sort of highlights a lot of disparity in the community and highlights wealth inequality and racial justice. So mm-hmm. by 1943, um, a more liberal constitution is is accepted and... Eventually, in 1962, uh, the UK Parliament grants Jamaica independence, and it becomes uh, and it gets its own um, independent prime minister. So they have been fully independent since 62. Um, today, you can go visit the Right Excellent Nanny of the Windward Maroons Monument in Kingston. And what I found interesting is that the structure of it is um, designed that there's a vertical structure that creates sound when wind blows through it, Mm -hmm. um, evolving the sound of the horns used by the Maroons to help coordinate against the British, which I find is a super cool way to integrate what occurred and the historical relevance of this thing. Um, 
There's also a lot, the other thing I didn't get into is like when I was looking up the Ashanti people, there's like really cool depictions of horns used in ceremonial things, but also like you can see the direct influence of Africa on this strategic advancement Mm -hmm. of their military that actually ended up helping them. Their Africanness helped them in this kind of moment of um, inequality, which I find really cool to think about. So yeah, using that in the monument now is just kind of beautiful. And then there's another vertical structure that helps, um, that symbolizes her surrounded by her warriors in mm-hmm. the time. Uh, I'll also say Queen Nanny is seen now on the $500 banknote in Jamaica, which is called the Nanny. And it's sort of an artist interpretation of who she was. But if you got $500 to spend in Jamaica, you can see her yourself. So that's Queen Nanny of Jamaica. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I love that. Because that, I mean, yet another part of history that like I really don't know that much about. Um, yeah. Well, I never knew the whole term, like the Maroons as like a, a ethnic group or a racial group. Mm-hmm. Um, and the integration of like, I, I find it so interesting. I was thinking about this because the census is this year. Yeah. And my ignorance of um, different ethnic and racial groups and like my my personal confusion over latino and hispanic and those terms and how do we distinguish one from the other and it's all actually tied into colonialism and what countries were historically um influenced by spain Mm -hmm. versus like your your racial identity and it's just it's 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 more complicated and it's worth investigating because it also ties to like how people view themselves like today there's latin x which is a whole other ball game that people are trying to agree with and like some people think we should get rid of the gendered stuff but that means changing the whole spanish language i mean so the spanish angle of this was like oh i wonder if jamaicans consider themselves hispanic because technically they have all of this spanish heritage but also they have this whole amazing uh unique ethnic group unto themselves that they probably identify as black i don't know what i don't know i'm sure there's a lot more detail that i didn't go into about like the racial identity of this culture um because i think to our ignorance as americans we think of jamaicans we think of black people but we don't think about like the native americans that are like intrinsically tied to the black culture there Mm -hmm. and what does that mean or some people say Afro-Latino, like that's a whole demographic that is a rich and varied culture as well. So yeah, eventually the census won't matter. Eventually taking numbers of people and what ethnicity they are won't matter. But right now it does. So I'm just interested to see how people identify themselves. And Yeah, and it's interesting, like this is probably a tangent, but like the relationship between like identity and the census in in the other direction like people like thinking about identity because those are the categories available to them on your like yeah government yeah forms. what what do the, especially with like the hispanic and latino mm-hmm. i i watched a few um i watched a few videos explaining it to silly white people like me they're like what's the difference what's the change what how is it ma- what does it matter it wasn't added to the census until the 70s you know, it's just, it's fascinating to look into because they're kind of, and then there's like, are you Hispanic or Latino? Like they sort of group them in ways. And then some Hispanics don't identify as Latino and some Latinos don't identify as Hispanic. And yeah. And it's interesting to sort of track the sort of like history of like when, when those categories get introduced, when like some of them go away and like what, what sort of is happening 
in and around that. Like I'm thinking particularly yeah. like the there used to be a lot more categories for like mixed race people that like specifically delineated like this idea of like what percentage black you were, which is Yeah. Like that's a gross history to think about. Yeah, because yeah, and then that whole identity, like, for Afro-Latino folks who use that term of Afro-Latino, of, like, their parent, is, one parent is black and one parent is of Latino heritage, if for each person that I've seen talk about it, it's very specific to them of, like, the influence of each side of the family and how they identify and the food they ate and the songs they listened to and the lessons they learned from their family. But it's just fascinating. As, as the world gets more mixed, it's going to be a question of, like, I wonder if it'll just turn into, like, how do you identify? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you write whatever, and, like, that's an unfortunate red tape thing, but then we have to type in all of them, like... Yeah, and, right, because, like, the, the, one of the, like, the, like, hopefully the positive version of this is, like, being able to look at and being, like, oh, this area is being underserved, this area is, like, primarily, like, black or Hispanic, and, like, we therefore should, like, use that data to help people, and, like, in a way, like, that's the, the, like, the optimistic way of understanding all this is, like, we record it because we want to be able to do a better job serving those people. And, like, we can't know, like, the, like... Well, mm-hmm. as a pure nerd, like, data is helpful. It's just helpful to know, like, we're not in a post-racial society yet, so it's helpful to know what the patterns are to then go, why is that the pattern? But you have to know what the pattern is uh, before you can change it in a lot of ways. Yeah, there's this there's this great book um, I'm reading right now called Invisible Women, which is all about, like gender and data and bias which is i think jane recommended that book to me that feels very on brand for jane yeah Um, right sounds right i would also recommend you i'm really enjoying it um but it's this sort of whole question of like we don't you can't look for those patterns if you don't have the data and so like sex segregated data or race segregated data is really important because you can't right you might be like oh i wonder if this thing impacts women more than it impacts other people and you can only answer that question if someone at some point took data where you had to check that box. Yeah. I mean, like, the the sad thing is, like, I think we have a maternal death. Uh, what is it? A maternal death rate? Mm-hmm. Mortal- mortality rate? Mortality rate. Mortality rate, yeah. In this country, that is not great. And I don't think that's anyone's fault. But it's also because to get data on pregnant women, you have to do tests and and trials on pregnant women and that is a very risky experiment for scientists to pursue so there's not a lot of funding in it so therefore there's not data so therefore there's not progress so it's like ooh, yeah i mean like if you were if i was pregnant would i want to go be in a study that studied i don't know blood pressure medicine for women to help with like complications in pregnancy and birth i don't know because that would be super super complicated or the fact that you know there's just historical discrepancy between who has access to what i mean like you see it now of like the majority of doctors are of what race and serving what community Mm -hmm. it's like the goal is that every business reflects the community that they're serving in and as america becomes more diverse the jobs have to equalize in like the representation so like doctors who are people of color need to also serve their communities and white community you know what i mean it's just America has to reflect its population and vice versa. Yes, exactly. For lack of a better word. Its institutions and its job fields and all of the progress and prosperity of it has to reflect mm-hmm. what the numbers are. Fill out your census, everybody. 
Yes. If you haven't if done you so have, yet. I mean, by the time you listen to this, the deadline will have passed, but we're sending you census energy as we speak. I know. I did mine in March. Yeah, me And then too. they called me again the other week, and I was like, I thought it was done. Oh, um, and people are really mad because they pushed the deadline up, and so there's less time to do it than there would have been otherwise. Which do you think would be the opposite thing you'd want to do in the middle of a pandemic when things are harder to do? I did apply for my absentee ballot. Woohoo! So that went out last week, the last week of August. So let's keep a timeline. Nice. And see how the postal service is doing. Yeah, I applied for mine online, but haven't gotten a confirmation that it's been received. I will say I listened to our local NPR here, Mm -hmm. which is in Alabama, and they had the Board of Elections... A guy on and he was very informative and clear and encouraging which was nice to hear of like you need if you want to get an absentee ballot sure you can wait you can but i recommend that you just go ahead and do it now and you don't have to worry about it be proactive be helpful you can use all these forms of id we're willing to accept all of these forms of id but you need to make sure you include it mm-hmm. so that we know that you're good but we try to open it up to you know he was, from my perspective, he was doing his due diligence. Yeah. Rather than like a snidely whiplash in the corner being like, maybe you can use a driver's license, but we might throw it out, you know, which I feel like is the rhetoric right now. Mm-hmm. And then I voted. Did I tell you? This yeah, you guys had your little, yeah, your local election. So, it was fine, but I don't want to be there on presidential day. Yeah, I think that's fair. Make space for someone who has to be there. Yeah. But I think the ballot's pretty simple for us. I think it's just a senator and president yeah we have like some state legislator races that are pretty important because pennsylvania like we're redistricting everything we have the chance to keep a democratic senator from alabama in the house or in the congress yeah we we would really like if you guys could do that for us i would too i don't think it's gonna happen no right yeah we talked about that at that last week too yeah i know Uh i like him well on there's a decent amount of signs for doug jones in my neighborhood too which is nice that's good it's like that's sweet to see. Yeah. Um, the, but yeah. The interesting thing I noticed in my the neighborhood I was in, not my current one, um, is there are lots of signs for the Republican state uh, representative who is running, mm-hmm. but only like one Trump sign. And I couldn't tell if that's because like hmm. Republicans in that neighborhood don't like aren't going to vote for Trump, but are going to vote Republican locally or if they are, yeah, but they just don't feel comfortable having a Trump sign on their lawn he's a polarizing cat he is apparently one of the the one the one trump sign in the neighborhood did get stolen and so they put it back up and they like secured it to their tree so it would not disappear the doug drone signs do make me a little bit happy but i'm also just like you know i'm a little disappointed that in the amount of signs i see no one puts the date or go here to get your absentee ballot like there's no Mm-hmm. Just reminds you of the name, which is fine, but also like you know we just had a mayor race and no one put the date for when we were supposed to elect them. Yeah, and I was and it was it was a weird date. So like, why not help your constituents out? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, when my when my dad was running to be judge of elections for our precinct a couple of years ago, like the biggest thing on his sign was the date of the election. Yeah, <laughs> it's like no one really. Sh- it doesn't matter if you vote for me, but you sh- should remember when the election is. Yeah. Just make it part of your day if you can. Um, so yeah, I'm going to vote absentee. We're going to see how that goes. Is there a way to do that? Allegedly? In Pennsylvania, there is. There's like an online portal you can sign into to see like, has your ballot been mailed? Have like, have they gotten it back? It. Have they counted it yet? Yeah, you can track mm-hmm. it. 
Um, mm-hmm. But I don't like that, that's just a Pennsylvania thing. I don't. I would imagine mm. other states would have that, but I don't exactly mm. know. Um, yeah, the thing I'm worried about is like I applied for my absentee ballot like three weeks ago and still haven't gotten that like confirm. Like I know they're not mailing it out for a little bit, but I haven't gotten the like we've received your request confirmation and you should have i think so i think the whole point of having the system is to be like yes we've received your request so who's to say anyway we should end this episode right see you next week same time same place yeah sounds good awesome talk to you later bye bye uh please vote please make sure you vote please make sure you know what you're voting for We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions of people you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you liked the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Jen, Catherine, and Marion for all their help on this project. Thank you for listening to Missing History. Missing History.